The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Bettina Elias Siegel. She is a mom of two and a nationally recognized writer and advocate on issues relating to children and food policy. She is a graduate of Yale College and Harvard Law School. She practiced intellectual property, advertising, and food law in New York City for almost a decade before turning to a career in freelance writing. In early 2010, she became interested in improving the food in her children's school district, and that would be the Independent School District in Houston, Texas, and soon after launched the popular Lunch Tray blog about all things related to kids and food in school and out. She is the author of a brand new book that is a must-read, in my opinion, titled Kid Food, The Challenge of Feeding Children in a Highly Processed World. Her writing has appeared in many outlets. The book is brand new, but you might have seen her in the New York Times, The Guardian, Civil Eats. She's been on national and local television. In 2015, Family Circle named Bettina one of the country's 20 most influential moms. She has also spearheaded three victorious change.org petition campaigns, and that has made her one of the most successful petitioners in the organization's history. And I just want to let our listeners know, too, that she is the author and illustrator of a fantastic free 12-minute rhyming video called Mr. Z's Apple Factory that teaches young children about highly processed food. It has received close to 50,000 views and has become a valued resource for teachers' nutrition education curricula. She's also the author of the free 50-page ebook, The Lunch Tray's Guide to Getting Junk Food Out of Your Child's Classroom. Welcome, Bettina. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to have you because I think that your new book, Kid Food, is probably one of the most important read that parents, teachers, and administrators can read if they care about children's health. Who did you write this book for? Who were you hoping would read it? I think I was really writing it primarily for parents. I got into this area very unexpectedly because, as you mentioned in my bio, this is not what I was trained to do. I'm trained as a lawyer. And I really became interested in improving my children's food environment because I was a parent and I was looking out for them and seeing all kinds of influences in their daily lives that were pushing them very much in the opposite direction. So first and foremost, I really want the book to be accessible to and helpful to and hopefully inspirational to parents. But it's, of course, for anyone who's interested in issues relating to food policy, our food system, and just food issues generally. Yeah. Now, you dedicated this book to Dana Waldo. I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. It's actually Dana. She's one of the Danas who pronounced it Dana. Dana. (laughs) Okay. Dana Waldo. Tell us about her. Oh, you know, no one's asked me that, and it's very sweet of you to do so. She was a also a mom-turned-advocate in San Francisco, and she spent decades, and really before these issues were on the national radar, working to improve the school food in that district and then also nationally. She was one of the first people who talked to me about an issue that now has so much 
discussion around it, which is lunch shaming. That was something very much on her mind long before it was in the paper, trying to find ways to make the cafeteria free of stigma so that children with little or no money were not set apart from their peers. And speaking personally, she was just such a phenomenal mentor to me and just a wonderful friend. I only met her in person twice in my life, and both times were actually quite brief, but we had a almost decade-long friendship by email, and she ultimately passed away in 2017, and it just felt right to me to dedicate this book to her because she was such a powerful influence on me and my advocacy. Yeah, well, that is lovely. I'm sure that she is smiling down looking at this book. (laughs) It's really a rich compilation of the history of how we got here, how agriculture policies feed into the kinds of highly processed food that is available to children. You define what is highly processed. And I thought that your piece, it's the very beginning of the book where you talk about how the food industry wants us to think that everything's processed if it's just been mildly preserved in some way. So frozen fruit, they say, is highly processed. But you really set the record straight and say, no, we're talking about foods that are basically produced by multinational corporations. They really don't meet children's nutritional needs. If we're talking about growth and healthy development, they have these huge multimedia campaigns, aggressive marketing to kids. And you go through in the book some of these marketing campaigns and how we can help our children rise above them. I want to bring forth one important piece in this book. And I think that for too long, we have just been focusing on certainly how junk food is marketed to kids, but we focus only on obesity. And while we have many diseases related to children's unhealthy weight gain, like diabetes and fatty liver disease, you also bring up cognitive delays. And I really appreciate the fact that we're talking about nutrition from a perspective of whole body wellness. Right. That was something that I really wanted to understand better going into this book. Obviously, we can very clearly see the negative effect of our highly processed diet on children who are carrying excess weight, who are suffering the chronic diseases associated with excess weight. But the question that was on my mind when I sat down to write the book is, well, what about all the other children, the two-thirds of children who are in the normal weight range? How are they doing? So it was really interesting and, I have to say, troubling to plunge into the data and look at studies that attempted to quantify children's diets finding that, in fact, most kids in this country, despite our incredible abundance of food, you could fairly say are still undernourished in many ways. They're certainly not eating the kind of primarily whole food diet, rich in foods with phytonutrients that we know would be most fostering of their health. And so then, not being a medical expert myself, I then talked to a lot of experts in the field to say, okay, putting aside obesity, why should parents worry about an overly processed, unhealthy diet. And just as you said, I spoke to people who talked about the impact of of a very refined carb breakfast on your child's concentration in the classroom, their ability to exert executive function and sit quietly and behave well in the classroom. I was told about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which does not necessarily correspond perfectly with obesity. You can be carrying excess weight around your organs internally and appear to be thin on the outside, but on the inside, you have some serious health consequences. So I really wanted to bring that point home because I hate to say it, but I do think sometimes we're a little bit inured now to childhood obesity. It's this seemingly intractable problem. We've been 
visibly seeing it and experiencing it for decades now. And I worried that if if I led with obesity, you might tune me out. And so I really wanted to lead with, let's look at kids' diets across the board. And then let's also talk about kids affected by obesity, because I don't mean to minimize that problem. It's tremendously important. But I wanted to try to broaden the discussion if I could. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. And I wonder, there's so many children that have behavioral disorders. Where is that coming from? And how can food help correct these problems? And how much is a poor diet contributing to those behavioral disorders? And the more we learn in the nutrition field about the gut-brain axis and how processed foods are not feeding the gut and not contributing to a healthy relationship between our behaviors and the way our brain functions, the more important this book becomes. So the timing couldn't be better. You were served a subpoena while you were writing this book. What was that about? Yes, I did mention that in my acknowledgments to thank my husband for putting up with my advocacy because that was a troubling moment. But that actually relates to a petition that I had several years ago, and someone did sue me among many other people. But the case actually went nowhere. Like very soon after he filed the complaint, it was dropped. So in the end, it was of no consequence, but it's, it's not the kind of thing anyone enjoys receiving at the door. Right. Well, they couldn't have delivered it to a better person. You know, having, oh, having you. a law background, I'd say that you could handle that. No, so I'm going to be jumping around this book because there's something in every single chapter for everyone. But I remember learning about this 540 Meals campaign. This was where a science teacher who just so happened to have a friend who was a McDonald's franchise owner, he decided to tell his students in his classroom that he was following, uh, he was just eating McDonald's and he was losing weight. And you describe the story in here about the case with this teacher, how ultimately he is no longer doing this and the course of events that led to him no longer doing that. But the thought that a teacher could go into the classroom with such a commercial message is very disturbing to me. Yes, it was very disturbing to me too, For absolutely. I mean, as I say in the book, so just to give people the background, so this the science teacher in Iowa, he admits in a book he self-published at a different time about this, that he and his franchisee friend came up with this idea that he was going to eat nothing but McDonald's, you know, three times a day and snacks for initially three months and then six months and prove that he could lose weight. And then he, he seemed to have brought this idea to his science students, his high schoolers, and they got into it. And so they did this experiment and then he filmed it. And initially, I don't know what his plans were for that footage, but eventually McDonald's corporate became aware of that footage and turned it into this little documentary called 540 Meals, Choices Make a Difference. And as I say in the the book, if he had really given kids a very realistic understanding of like calorie balancing and here's how you figure out your calorie needs. And by the way, here's how we have to also have to think about nutrition. You know, we can't eat McDonald's all day and expect to cover all our nutritional bases. If he had done that, I might have been more tolerant of the exercise. But as I describe in the book, it was such an overtly commercial piece of film. It was really like an infomercial for McDonald's. And it was highly misleading to children about the degree to which anyone should be eating McDonald's with great frequency. And he didn't disclose any of that to them. And so that really got my back up as a mom, as an advocate, as a public school parent back then, the idea that that could show up in, in my kid's classroom. And so as I describe in that chapter, I initially just wrote about it and got this in front of the press because he, McDonald's hadn't yet started getting that movie into schools. They were about to. 
And I managed to get a lot of negative coverage, but nonetheless, McDonald's would not back down. And then I started what was my third change.org petition, which got like 90,000 signatures. And eventually McDonald's just shut the whole thing down. And the movie actually never did make it into schools, which was such a, a wonderful victory. Indeed. Thank you so much. I hope that this gentleman has been banned from teaching science because he clearly doesn't <laughs> I don't know under- what happened to him. He was he, he actually quit his job to become a paid McDonald's brand ambassador. So I don't know Whoa. if he's still doing that or if he's back teaching. I don't know. Well, I hope he's not back in the classroom because he clearly doesn't understand biology. And <laughs> since you brought up the issue of balance, I want to approach a topic that is something that is often repeated. If I'm going to work in the media and I talk about the problem with calories that these junk foods contain, the response is often, as you mentioned, well, just balance it with exercise. And people do not understand how much exercise would be needed. And you describe a research project, I believe, where was it at a corner store where they put up a sign that said, first, you'd have to run for 50 minutes or or jogging for five miles, but both of those messages really brought home the fact that you can't possibly burn this junk off in one day very easily. Exactly. It's it's a really smart message for the processed food industry and the sweetened beverage industry to talk all only about calories and, and this idea of balance because it sounds logical. If you just eat less than you expend, you know, you'll be fine. And of course that's true. You know, no one's no one's disputing that. But for one thing, there's clearly a difference in, like, the quality of calories that we can eat, right? The McDonald's is a great example, that McDonald's film. But also, right, they never tell you one soda you'd have to jog for an hour. Well, none of us are doing that, or we're not doing it anywhere near to the extent we'd need to to burn off what we're actually eating. And so, right, this was a study that was done at Johns Hopkins. I think the researcher is actually now at Harvard, but she ran this study where they posted those kinds of disclosures on the refrigerated beverage case in the corner store and actually showed that it changed adolescents' purchasing behavior. So I really was intrigued by that study and included it in a section that I have in the book about exactly that. How can we kind of inoculate children against big food marketing? And that, I thought, was one very good approach is to show them, sure, you can have the soda, but if you think you're going to exercise it off, you might want to think again. Right. Let me take one break. We're halfway through. I just want to remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Ms. Bettina Elias Siegel. She is an attorney. She is also the author of Kid Food, The Challenge of Feeding Children in a Highly Processed World. I highly recommend this book. You may know her from The Lunch Tray, which is a blog about all things related to kids and food in school and out. I want to talk about another message that parents often receive about processed food, and that is we're advertising to children, and that's okay because ultimately it's the parent's decision with regard to what they do. I don't think that's fair to parents because, you know, we are oftentimes we're working hard, we're tired, we're stressed. Your kid asks for something. You told the story of of one of your children asking for Gatorade for a soccer game, I too have had to be like, we can't do that. I just can't bring this to the sports field. You know, this this is a product that was designed for athletes who are really exercising for 90 minutes or more. Tell me how you approach the topic of the responsibility always being put back to the parents. Well, right. I find that 
that argument that you laid out at the outset, which is, you know, we can advertise to your kids. We can entice them with cartoon characters. We can entice them with games. We can have, like, crazy colors and shapes and reach them through their smartphone and do all of these things to stoke, stoke, stoke their interest in our products because you're the ultimate decision maker. To me, first of all, if you've acknowledged up front that I'm the decision maker, why don't we have a system where you can only advertise to me? I'm the decision maker. Like, to me, it's illogical to think otherwise. And then, of course, the true answer is they know, as every parent knows, it's very effective to stoke children's demands because they nag their parents. And parents do start to feel worn down. And I think all but the most stoic parents give in now and then, and that's exactly what they're counting on, is just wearing you down through your children. And it's just not fair. It's not fair to parents. We've got enough on our plate, I would say. Yeah. And also, what I've heard from parents is they don't want their kids to be different from their peers, because maybe they get made fun of if they're eating something in school that's different from the other children and they're eating the processed foods, then their child becomes an outlier. And socially, that's awkward. Right. That is true. I was the kid always bringing the whole wheat bread on my sandwich and everyone else had the Wonder Bread and I definitely felt a little weird about it. It's funny, that's not a topic I talked about in the book, but it's a valid one. I mean, I think we do live in a processed food culture and kids don't like standing out in any way. But the flip side is, I think kids are often... They can be sort of intrigued by difference. Like in our children's elementary school, we had kids from like 40 different countries represented, and kids would open their lunchbox and have all kinds of foods that were unfamiliar to their neighbors, but that actually became something interesting. They would share and they would talk about it. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a negative. And of course, you can talk to your children and should talk to your children. Like, here's why we're not buying the Flaming Hot Cheetos, and here's why we're buying this this product instead. You know, I think it's okay to give them an understanding of why you're making those choices and that you're doing so in their best interest. Yeah. And you talk about certainly food literacy. You talk about inoculating children, as you mentioned before, teaching them media literacy. How are you being duped? And kids don't like to be duped. But you brought forth a topic that I had not heard of before. And it was, am I pronouncing this correctly, Sapir? I think it's pronounced Sapere, but I've only read it myself, but I think that's how you pronounce it. It's from Latin. And it's sensory-based food education. So we're teaching children to taste and to be introduced to food based on the sensory components of different foods and to know their food. So I guess in Latin, there were the two words to taste and to know, and then that turned into taste ed. I love that. Tell us about that. So so I have not seen this program in practice, but... An author who I greatly admire named B. Wilson, who wrote this book called First Bite, who I cite in the book a lot with respect to how children form their taste preferences, in writing that book, she became interested in this form of education and now is very involved in the U.K., in this form of education. She actually just held a symposium about it that I was sort of following vicariously on Twitter. But what's so great about it is there's an understanding that if if a food is unfamiliar to a child, the most threatening and scary thing is to put it in your mouth. I mean, think about it. If there's something you find odd or maybe even repulsive and someone says, please put this in your mouth, it's very threatening. And so the way they introduce food to children is in the most neutral and non-threatening way. They let them hear it. Like, let's, let's, snap the celery next to our ears and hear it and let's touch it and let's write about it. And, let's, and they have all these different ways of approaching food that take the, the fear out of the equation for children. And it's just a wonderful 
form of education, I think it's so necessary in this world where so many kids are growing up not even exposed to so many fruits and vegetables. I think I describe in my book, a school nutrition director gave me a quote that just was astonishing of watching children bite into a banana without peeling it because they'd never seen one before. Oh, my. Wow. That's quite surprising. Yeah, you did write about also the tomato where children were unfamiliar with the whole tomato, like they didn't know what that was. Right. Jamie Oliver had a show in America for a while called The Food Revolution. And in one of the segments, which was in West Virginia, he walked into a classroom and just held up very common vegetables and kids could not identify them. And again, like I'm not saying this in a judgmental way. They're growing up in a house where maybe there's, you know, there isn't access to those foods or the parent doesn't have the nutrition education to buy those foods or doesn't know how to cook them. So I'm not not saying it in a judgmental way, but it's just a fact that so many children are growing up with a really shocking amount of food illiteracy. And to the extent we can correct that, that will help, I think, bridge children to actually trying those foods. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, for some of those communities where maybe it's not conducive to growing food, you know, if the soil is rocky, if if they're in an urban environment, the tomatoes that may or may not be available at the grocery store, they're not going to be the ones that we know taste amazing in July coming out of a garden or at a farmer's market. And as you mentioned in the book, this whole idea of cooking literacy, I remember when cooking itself was deemed sort of non-scientific. You know, we didn't want to share recipes in nutritional science. And yet I'm very glad to know that there are efforts to bring back cooking skills because I look at cooking skills as a life skill. Absolutely. I think that if if your child doesn't have basic cooking skills, and I'm not talking about they need to be like Food Network level chefs, but just basic cooking skills to be able to prepare a simple meal for themselves and their friends, I think it's akin to sending your kid into the world without knowing how to swim. You know, it's like like an incredibly important life skill. And to not have it does subject you to potential harm because if you can't cook, you're necessarily dependent on packaged foods, fast food, restaurant food, and none of that is going to be nearly as healthy as what you can prepare for yourself. And so I think you say schools are bringing it back. I would like to see so much more of that. And I understand the challenges. There are expenses associated with it. There are space constraints. There are curriculum restraints. I get all that, but it is so important. And generations did actually learn cooking skills at school. I did actually in middle school. And it's just such a tragedy to me that we've weeded that out. Yeah. And you mentioned that there's a creative way of perhaps some school districts are bringing like a truck that teaches kids how to cook. Yeah. So it's called the Charlie cart. And it started, I think, with a Kickstarter. Like they developed the prototype and then they raised money. And it's the coolest thing. It's a little mobile kitchen and it's quite compact. I've never seen one in person, but I think they can, you can teach an entire, you know, cooking curriculum with a mobile kitchen. And I think they cost about $9,000, but that comes with a full curriculum, lesson plans, all of that. And again, I know that's a huge ask for some communities and some schools, but for those that can afford it, that is a way you could be teaching home ec without having to stress about, well, we don't have a classroom anymore that's, you know, kitted out like a kitchen. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the cost because I've got your book open to the tax code page and you've got some dollars here. You say, this is really kind of disturbing to me that corporations are currently allowed 
to deduct their advertising expenses, regardless of whether those ads happen to promote unhealthy foods and drinks to kids. And you write that, let's see, I guess this was Stephen Gortmaker's work. He's a professor in the practice of health and sociology at Harvard, that eliminating the tax deduction just for companies' child-directed TV ads promoting unhealthy products could save $260 million in healthcare costs. So if we could perhaps stop that loophole and not subsidize with our tax dollars the advertising of junk food, maybe we could afford to have food literacy education and cooking skill education in our schools. What a wonderful use of that money it would be. I know, right? (laughs) I love that proposal. I love that. Right. I mean, I thought that was a really interesting analysis that he did. It was not something I'd ever thought about that, sure, of course, you know, advertising is a business expense. It gets deducted. And no one is making any kind of value judgment about, well, wait a minute, why are we allowing a deduction for something that we know actually is causing societal harm and then causing us to all pay health care costs on the back end? So I thought that was a really interesting analysis that he did. I mean, obviously, my preference would be let's let's ban that kind of advertising outright. But if we couldn't do that, maybe short of that, I you know, it's a really interesting idea. Yeah. What I find whenever we get into conversations about banning advertising, and I agree that children, even the American Academy of Pediatrics, as you mentioned in the book, has suggested that we indeed ban advertising to kids because they can't understand it. They can't make sense of it. But I think that the whole idea of advertising to children seems wrong. And how do we put the ball back into the parents or or caring parents and teachers court to say, how can I be a better advocate? We only have two minutes left. And you've got a whole section on how to be a better advocate. What can you tell us in a short amount of time? Well, I have one chapter that's really just devoted, and I think this is the one you mean, devoted to face-to-face advocacy, which is the kind of advocacy most parents will get involved in, if any, like talking to your soccer coach about, could we cut out the Gatorade and just have water or things like that, or, or, or asking your child's teacher, could we offer only healthy food at the classroom party this time around? But that kind of advocacy can be very hard. I find it very hard. I'm kind of a introverted, non-confrontational person, and I find it very uncomfortable, and I think a lot of parents do. And so in that chapter, I laid out 14 rules that I gleaned from successful parent advocates, from my own mistakes, from Dana Waldo, who we mentioned at the outset, and just share those with parents in hopes that they will feel more supported and more empowered and have some strategies for those kinds of sometimes difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. It's excellent. Well, we have to close because our time is up, but I want parents to know about kid food, the challenge of feeding children in a highly processed world. I think it's a critical book for anyone who has children in their lives, teachers, school administrators, parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles. If you care about children, this book is really a critical read. So in closing, I want to Thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Bettina Elias Siegel. She is a mom of two, a nationally recognized writer, advocate on issues relating to children and food policy. She is an attorney and the author of this terrific book. And if you want to visit her website, go to Bettina 
siegel.com and I will provide a link to that so that everyone can start receiving your lunch tray email updates. They can download the free 50-page ebook about how to get junk food out of your children's classroom. You can watch the video about Mr. Z and you can find out how to buy the book. So Bettina, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. 